pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. 水煮肉片. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Welcome everyone. My name is David Guimarães Martins, or David Guimarães Martins, try to say that three times in a row. And I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And I'm so excited for the release of this episode from my podcast, Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Now, you might ask me, why such an awesome name? Well, I'm originally from Portugal and I've been living in the United States for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. I'll be asking my guests if they've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes, so next time you interview someone, keep that question in mind. Every episode I'll have a guest and we'll talk about everything related to food, not necessarily ingredients or dishes, but how through food we can help communities, how can we evolve as people, the success of small business owners, the fascinating stories that we remember growing up with our family sitting around a table, and even which ingredients are overrated and underrated, and much more. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast on all the platforms that you have access to. Follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes and follow the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. I hope you have an amazing time listening to every episode. And don't forget I'm Portuguese, so if something doesn't sound exactly right, just move on because life is too short. When my guest today was a child, his dream was to be a chef, create his own recipes and cook in a restaurant for about 50 people. And according to him, he's doing exactly that. But instead of 50 people, it's hundreds of thousands from all over the world. On March 10, 2010, alongside his old school friends from a place in England that I can't pronounce, Ben, Mike, Jamie and Barry created Sorted Food, a YouTube cooking channel and food website with over 2.3 million subscribers more than 12,000 hours of content watched globally every day and total videos watched exceeding 500 million. Google has described Sorted Food as one of the world's largest food and cooking communities. Not only has he won multiple awards for his cookbooks and media content, he even cooked for Her Majesty the Queen without even knowing. My guest believes that anyone can grasp the basics of good cooking and then the fun really starts. Ben Abril, welcome to the podcast. Hi, what an intro, wow. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I do my best. Great, great to be here and chat to you. Thank you very much. So it, this is actually true that you actually cooked for the Queen and you were not fully aware that she was coming, right? Not at the time, yeah. So I was, I've done a number of sort of jobs as a real chef um, over the years and one of them was private dining and I was cooking in a private estate and um, yeah, it wasn't until halfway through the day I'd already prepared most of the food that I found out who the VIP guest actually was um, on that evening and it was Her Majesty on her birthday. Um, so yeah, that was quite a surprise and, and a wonderful experience because ultimately it didn't really change anything. I was still, I was cooking for a very important person, but everyone you cook for is very important. So it didn't really change what I did. It just changed how it felt, which is yeah. quite bizarre, really. I think at the end of the day, sometimes people forget that these people with higher titles, let's put it like that, they are really people at the end of the day. And, you know, just regular person that they might love just a cheese sandwich for dinner and that's it. Yeah. So two important questions that I always start, and I actually know this question, at least the first one, the answer for the question. Have you ever been to Portugal? I have. Um, twice. Once was many, many, many years ago um, on a family holiday um, to the Algarve. And it was, um, that was great. I, I remember that well. But more recently, last year, um, myself and some friends went to Lisbon and we spent 
sort of two and a half lovely, very sunny days in Lisbon, um, eating and drinking our way around the city. It was great. Okay. Do you know any Portuguese words? No, obrigado, but that's about it, I'm afraid. <laughs> hey, that's, that's pretty much fluent. You can move there. Um, that's <laughs> awesome. So obviously, you know, sorted food has been an incredible, incredible achievement. But as a child, what drew you to being a chef? I, I, I grew up around good food. I guess I didn't really know any different. Good food was always available at home and it was always home cooked food. It was always scratch cooking. So I just grew up not really knowing any different. I think I found a real interest in it when I could half apply my kind of love of science. At school, I was doing maths and chemistry with sort of this other sort of creative outlet, which was for me food. And those two married together, I realized there was quite some exciting stuff that could be done when the world of science and food kind of combines understanding what you're cooking rather than just cooking it. Yeah. Did you have any inspiration or like family members that were great chefs or cooks, any cooking shows, any chefs? Did you have any, any of that? I don't think any of my family were really in hospitality. Um, my granddad was an, uh, a cook in the army. And I remember hearing some of the stories about how he would cook en masse, you know, recipes that involved a shovel of this and a shovel of that rather than <laughs> teaspoons and tablespoons yeah. because of the scale. But not really from a family point of view, other than being surrounded by good food. But in my teenage years, I grew up watching the likes of Jamie Oliver um, on TV and the TV chefs of the time. Gary Rhodes, who was always super passionate and spoke very eloquently of food. Um, and then Jamie, who was much more kind of get rid of all the, the pretense and just get down to, in his words, bish bash bosh, just get the food done. And yeah. it was about socializing with friends. And I think those kind of two worlds combined, I love. You, especially being from England, I'm going to share with you. I don't think I ever said this. The two cooking shows that inspired me, it was The Two Fat Ladies. And the other one, I just thought was the whole idea. I thought the whole idea was very cool, which was Ready, Steady, Cook when Ansley Harriet was hosting. Because so interestingly enough, Ready, Steady, Cook has just come back this year. Um, mm -hmm. It had 20 series and I was always amazed that it went for so long, but it was such a simple concept. But the fact is people like quick, simple, throw it together food that you can grab from your fridge. We were actually on an episode of Ready, Steady, Cook with Ainsley Harriet. In our first year of Sorted, we were oh, the really? bag contestants. Um, so we were able to bring in a, a bag of uh, mystery ingredients and tip them out onto the bench and see what the chefs could come up with. It's a great concept for show. So as much as you can share, is it really just 20 minutes? Absolutely. We go. sat in the audience for it and it's cooked in real time. They have a, a slight pause between tipping out the bag, choosing what they're going to cook. And then there's a slight pause while the a home ec team bring in all the relevant saucepans they might need, equipment. So everything they need is in place. But okay. once the clock starts, it does not stop. That's real-time cooking. Yeah, for people that don't know, this show is, like Ben is, just said, it came back. But I think you can still go on YouTube, actually, and watch from the early 2000s and some things. Uh, and it was really an inspiration because it was like five ingredients and the chefs will make like five dishes. And it was like, wow. I remember running, coming from school at three o'clock every day to watch BBC because it was amazing. So that was one of the inspirations that the two fat ladies and then Jamie Oliver, yeah, actually. I was going to say what, what, was, what was so beautiful about the two fat ladies, and I think echoes to some extent the, the approach that we've taken with Sorted, is when you watched it, it wasn't really about the food. I mean, mm -hmm. the food was great. It was often um, very old school, very traditional, um, a lot of um, sort of look back at historic dishes as well. But yeah. you really watched it for the two of them and how they reacted and bounced off each other and their characters and the friendship that they had on screen, you knew was 100% genuine. And I think that there are other examples outside of food. We sort of things like Top Gear as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to be a car buff to enjoy Top Gear. You watch it more for the camaraderie of the presenters. That's um, true. 
and that's changed over the years, but it's always been about the relationship between the presenters as much about the, um, the cars. And we've always thought food's the same. It's for us, it's, it's about that friendship and mm-hmm. the food just happens to be this perfect catalyst to start every conversation. Yeah. So sorted food just, you know, how did you get it started basically? So we've known each other for 20 odd years. We went to school together. Um, but when we went to different universities studying different degrees uh, across the country, we would come back at Christmas time and semester breaks. And it really started as an idea around a pub table. Um, we talk about the beer mat, but essentially it was me training to be a chef, scribbling down recipes on the back of a beer mat. You know, if it was easy enough to fit on a beer mat or a beer coaster, then there's no reason why you can't give it a go at uni. Because we realized that as students, those who didn't have interest in food, weren't equipped for it they weren't equipped to move out of home and live on their own and cook for themselves because ultimately we hadn't been taught at school and if you hadn't been fortunate enough to be taught by your parents for whatever reason quite often the fact that they weren't taught at school either so didn't know um, then you're left in this kind of middle ground and that's where sorted started was how do we how do we take our friendship and our sharing of recipes between us and put it online so it can help more people and it, it scaled from there but essentially it's the same thing it's a group of friends now only friends now i mean millions of people around the world who choose to subscribe to Sorted. We yeah. consider them all our friends. And how do we share recipes together um, and just have a bit of fun with stuff? Do you think people, you were saying like how a lot of college students are not even equipped, right? Or to do cooking or even have interest. Do you think social media and even your job, do you think change completely nowadays from when you were in college and now? Well, when we started a university or my first year at university, Facebook didn't exist. Twitter, Instagram weren't around. So I think YouTube was in its very earliest stages back then. Uh, so there was no alternative other than TV. And TV was always very passive. It was very one way. And as much as I love the shows that I grew up watching, I was inspired by them. It was very much one chef or two people in the case of two fat ladies standing there and telling you how to do something. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Whereas I guess what social media has done is opened up a conversation because we can publish what we think is right but people can challenge that or add value to that or comment on that and, ha- and add their opinion and it constantly evolves so i think the platforms now is more like hosting a conversation it is social as opposed to just passively watching food content which is what existed before having four people in charge basically what are the benefits of that and how do you like pitch ideas well, so it began with sort of four of us you see on screen now, James, very much sort of the fifth, the fifth member of recent years. And the good thing is we all have different interests mm-hmm. um, and we all have different skills. So where back from even day one, Barry was always taking control of um, the photography and kind of the look of the brand and how things felt. And I was doing the food that was right back then. Now, Mike's doing everything from a production point of view. James is very much leading on the food and doing a huge amount of the food photography as well. But we all have different interests. And I think what's quite good is that we don't have to all agree. In fact, it's better when we don't. In some of our things, when we're reviewing products or talking about food trends or cooking up dishes, it's okay for us to disagree because wouldn't it be a boring place in the world if everyone thought the same about food? And actually, that's what makes food quite interesting as you're allowed to disagree. And again, back to what I said earlier, food becomes the catalyst to every conversation we have. And we don't mind the fact we don't agree. So we can all chip ideas in because we all have different sort of outlook on food, which is cool. So, you know, it was created 10 years ago and the rise has been amazing. And I'm sure even now with the locks, if people more locked down, that people probably even watch even more your contents. So, you know, you basically have your fingers in so many pies, you're so busy and so many platforms. Do you ever get like burned out? Do you lose momentum or inspiration? And if so, how do you recharge to get it back? Good question. I think we're very lucky and probably quite unusual as a team of content creators is the fact that we have a team. 
and the team is much bigger than what you see on screen, as I'm sure you're aware. There's, there's 15, 16 of us mm. who make the entire thing from start to finish. And that includes all of the, the cookbooks and the tools for the club. So we can always bounce off each other. And when there's a particularly busy time of year, when it might be coming up to a deadline for a cookbook, or we might be working with a brand partner, we've got a certain project which takes us away for a week or two, maybe traveling for some content, that obviously puts pressures elsewhere. But as a team, it's much easier to juggle than I think if you're on your own content creating three, six, five days a year, and that's when you can possibly get burnout. I think the fact that we're all friends is good as well, because we all go through peaks and troughs in our life, whether it's big life stages like weddings or, or moving house. Like there are times when things are busy and that's mm-hmm. okay because we can all say to each other, hey, I just need, a, just give me a bit of space. And that's cool. And I think you get away with that a lot better because of the friendship we have, as opposed to just having kind of a hierarchy of employment and this is my job. Yes, yep. it's our job, but we never really use the J word because it doesn't feel like a job. We're very lucky to do what we do. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of privileged in that sense. Where do you think you can take sorted food from here? Is there any dream you have yet to achieve sorted food or non-sorted food related? We've always dreamt of the idea of a physical space maybe that begins to offer up our food in a space. I mean, maybe even a sorted pub is where the idea started around a pub table. But also you look at the current climate and some of the challenges around hospitality. And actually that's, that's a real challenge right now. And it's one that we've considered and come back to many, many times. But every time we come back to ideas and whether they happen or not, we always remind ourselves that crazy thing about food is it keeps evolving. We can have the same conversation that we had three years ago today, and it'll be a completely different conversation. You look at the things that are driving people now from provenance and sustainability and nutrition and all these things that were just very flouncy buzzwords three or five years ago, but now they're really important. And now not just foodies are important, but everyone understands the importance of all of those things. So although I can't see any sort of other big projects in terms of vastly different to what we do, I think yeah. it constantly evolves because food is always topical. Um, so yeah, lots, lots still to explore. And it always amazes us that every time we come back to it, we're nowhere near finishing it. Yeah. Do you have any regrets about never having that 50-sit restaurant that you dreamed of as child's? No, and one day it may come back. One day it may come back. But those, I mean, you know, you work in the industry. That's a really tough, a tough gig. And having worked in hospitality myself for a number of years, hotels and restaurants and private dining, I miss the adrenaline of that yeah. kind of buzz. Almost like the treadmill of time isn't going to stop. The diner's going to come in. We have to be able to feed them. I miss that adrenaline, mm-hmm. but we just have a different sort of adrenaline now. It's live on TV. We were very fortunate to be on the Today Show many years ago on American Breakfast Television. You know, you're live to the nation for four minutes. There's a whole different level of adrenaline with that than there is with a full restaurant full of diners waiting to be fed. So I think, do we miss it? Do I miss it? Not yet, but I think it'll probably come back around one day. One yeah. day. When I started to work at the embassy, I used to leave all the food to be done like an hour before the guests arrived because I want to get that rush from a restaurant. And it was a chaos, but I understand that that rush where you're talking about, that it's something it's difficult to for people to feel. And I think the problem, and you were saying that at the beginning, People sometimes romanticize a little bit what's having a restaurant is actually is because they think it's really nice, right? Oh, a restaurant, it's so nice. And there's nothing, there's no problems. And it, I mean, it's, it's a whole lot of layers. It's, it's not just open, you know, opening the doors and that's it. So, yeah. The fun part of running a restaurant, you know, the meeting and teaming up with suppliers, the creating menu ideas, the, the writing a menu, the working with the team, that's all the lovely parts. But yeah, the, the stress when something goes wrong. But that's when I think you learn the most is when something goes wrong and you work out how to dig yourself out of that hole. 
and make sure that you still give the diner what they require. You know, the, the customer is nearly always right. Nearly. nearly. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned the, uh, in 2015, you were on NBC, right? You were for a three-month tour in the U.S., How was it? And did you have any misconceptions about American food? Oh, 100%. So I think we all just presumed that American food was the, the, the fast food, that kind of style of food. And I think we were, yes, that of course that exists as it does the world over. But when you scratch beneath the surface, I think we were constantly amazed and still are. We, we return to the US every year. We have done travel permitting. We will still get there this year, perhaps. But It's when you meet the people behind the food, that's what's really interesting. And that's what blew us away was meeting the people that are passionate about the stories behind the food. And every step we've, we've been, say, very fortunate, we've traveled to a number of states and some cities that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being foodie destinations, which forces you even more to get off the beaten track and ask the locals. And that's where we're sorted is great because we've got locals everywhere. There yeah. are subscribers who watch us, who live in every corner of the world. And wherever we go, we can ask them. And there'll be someone who knows better than we do because they live there and then they can point you in the right direction. And time and time again, we were blown away by the quality and the variety and just the, the interest that people take in food when you scratch beneath the surface. Yeah, America has great restaurants. What surprised you the most when you went on that tour? I think, so some of the best places you've been to, places like Oregon, uh, Portland in Oregon, and then sort of moving down the coast and just seeing the, the farm to table movement. Yes, that's been around for a decade now or more, but it was really, you could actually see it. it you could, every menu had evidence of that. And the microbrewery scene, which is phenomenal, yeah. and the craft ales that aren't just there for the, for the sake of being there. They're there to pair with the food. And then the menu is crafted to pair with the beer. And the beer snacks menu isn't just a bag of crisps or a packet of peanuts. It's excellent food created and curated to match with this very regional local brew, which will be different next month or next year because it constantly evolves. And I think for me, it was just those following that trail and Oregon being a standout. We did it last year, but the food was just exceptional. And I think the, the craft beer kind of movement that followed it um, is second to none. Where do you see in your country your foods uh, going to? You know, how do you think it's a trend of farm to table more and more? Because even if you just drive to the countryside in England, you start having more, you know, people that do that, uh, even grow things in their backyard and, and serve it. Where do you see English food going in the next 10 years? Well, I think the trends were already moving towards kind of um, understanding more about where your food comes from, grow your own provenance, local. I think the last three months and the circumstances we've been through with COVID has accelerated that more people than ever before, certainly from Sorted's audience, when we're talking to them online, are loving the idea of growing their own, sometimes for the first time. And it might only be a window box, or it yeah. might be for the first time they've turned that bit of space out in their backyard into something they can grow food in. I think just people connecting to their food more. Um, and I think that kind of provenance and story will continue to thrive. So whether it's street food, fast food, <clears throat> supermarket food, or grow your own food, I think it'll all come with just more story and more time to understand where it's coming from rather than just grab and go. I think that's where we'll continue to see the shift where everything will, people will want to explain and hear about the stories rather than feeling like it's being forced on them because it's a marketing ploy. I think people will generally care more. Yeah. Do you grow your own vegetables or herbs or any of that? I have a herb garden and I guess say garden, a window box. Um, and I've got <laughs> the basics, probably five or six herbs. And I love that. And having been at home a lot more the last few months, I've been able to care for it a lot better. I would love a, a space to, to trial some more stuff. 
my dad always did have a space in the garden when I was growing up uh-huh. this time of year. And I'm talking 20, 25 years ago. I used to remember picking the tomatoes, the courgettes, the runner beans. And that was great. I used to love that. They always yeah. taste better fresh from the garden. Yeah. Is there any stereotype that people have about English food that you just want to deny it right now or defend it? I think, yeah, I think there is a stereotype perhaps that still exists. I think it's probably shifted a bit now that is very boring. It's very bland. It's very meat and two veg. And I think it was 20, 30, maybe 50 years ago. I think right now with the world, not just the UK and, and England, but we celebrate what's local much better now. And I think adopting techniques from the rest of the world, I see us doing an awful lot more pickling and fermenting that you might see in kind of more Scandi cooking or the introduction of kimchi and things from um, South Korea that we've seen sort of blow up as being super popular. Taking on those cooking styles and applying them to the produce we have here, yeah. that's where food starts to get really exciting. And I think we're seeing it more. But you're right, there is probably a stereotype that the British food is a bit boring and a bit stodgy and a bit heavy. And it probably was, and probably necessarily so, 50 years ago. But I think it's moved on from that now. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about the last 10 years, 15 years of cooking and foods is that there's this blend that you can, you can go England or Portugal or Brazil or United States. There's a lot of things that are just blending, right? I mean, there's just not necessarily being something just British or just French or just Portuguese. My only thing for that, I'm not so sure if you agree or not, is that how copycat can be. How can you be sometimes in Portugal? I remember being in Portugal just last year and I remember like, oh, this is a Washington DC restaurant because people start paying attention more to the decoration of the restaurant. And, you know, the menus are very trendy and then all the servers, they, they are wearing plaid shirts. You know, how do you think it can be a very dangerous trend or do you think there's always going to be a little bit of separation? I'm not sure you'll ever be able to stop it just because the way that fashions come and go. I think what's really interesting, if you look at fashion as an example, they go in full circle. And I think what is becoming cool again now is remembering the cultural, the, like the roots, where this started from, um, maybe polishing around the edges at times. But actually, the rawness of the, the reality and the authenticity of that yeah. is what's so attractive now. So copying what's being done elsewhere, I think that'll always happen. Yeah, I mean, you look at the We've had a huge, but again, I'm probably looking at the last six, eight years, huge increase in street food and mm -hmm. food vans and stuff like that. Well, well, that's come from kind of the possibly Portland, Oregon, or you know, New Orleans, who had an amazing kind of food truck scene, and, and Austin in, in Texas. Like when we were visiting the States and seeing that food truck scene there that had been around for X number of years more than it had back home. And then you see it cropping back up in places in and around London. And you can see that it's copycat, but it's been given its own kind of flair yeah. with this year's trends. And all of a sudden, yes, there's a food truck here, but it's serving kombucha because mm -hmm. that's this year's trend. And I think yeah. things will always evolve. I don't think there's any harm in that, but it is important to remember where it all started yeah. and to pay homage and respect to that, but also not a problem to add your own twist and, and to fuse it a bit. But you've kind of got to understand what was yeah. in order to be able to respectfully change it. And I think that's the difference. I'm just, I'm just a cranky old person as well. Conditions <laughs> <laughs> so, are good too. <laughs> what was your first memory of taste? Oh, wow. Big question. Um, I'm sure there are earlier, but actually going back to one of the things I just mentioned about running up the garden with a, an age when I was probably just able to run. So it was more like a stagger. It was probably looked similar to me walking home from the pub after a few drinks now. <laughs> so I was staggering up the garden aged, whatever it was, two or three. 
with arm bountiful of produce that dad had grown and like not necessarily even the taste but just the smell of a freshly picked tomato where you're actually probably smelling the vine more than you are the tomato or runner beans or courgette and I think that was one of the first passions that I found as as a smell and I I guess it played into taste as well. Um, The most underrated ingredient? Celery. And actually, again, this has only really made me wake up to it in the last few months where there are so many farms that produce celery for mostly the industry, restaurants and hotels, because consumers don't buy a huge amount of celery. So when restaurants and hotels and big kitchens and school canteens have been shut, there's been no home for celery and it's all been grown. It was all planted long before the lockdown. And then all of a sudden this celery has got nowhere to go because as consumers, we don't see a value in something like celery, but put it into the base of so many dishes and it just improves everything and or serve it as a vegetable on its own. And that's something that I very, very rarely see is braised celery, which I actually really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Overrated ingredient. That's probably just a change in times, but I think Oh, ingredient or flavor. I think salted caramel is now so overrated. Although it does clever things with a palate, I yeah. just think it's been overused and it appears everywhere. And I think that's now overrated. It's clever, but there's other ways of achieving it. The best breakfast you can have. I really like, I think all breakfasts have to have eggs, um, but I really like smoked fish for breakfast, um, whether it's smoked haddock in an omelette or with poached eggs or even something like a kedgeri that's got kind of the, the gentle spicing of rice and smoked fish with an egg on the side. Egg and smoked fish. What's the WTF combination, the strangest combination that you just can't accept, that you see someone doing or a trend that you like? No. Nope. Oh, I've got to be very careful saying this out loud, giving your listeners. I don't understand peanut butter and jelly. I don't well, understand Well, thank you very much it. for coming, Ben. This was a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I just... I love both in isolation. I don't get the two together. I'm weird. I'm the odd one out. I know that. Can I share with you two that people told me and I thought was a little weird? The first one was popcorn in tomato soup. Okay. Yeah. Bizarre. Both textually and as a flavor. It's a crouton. It's a different crouton. And a coleslaw sandwich. I don't mind coleslaw in a sandwich, but it has to have more going on. Egg or ham or something in there as well. No, like, that's, col- that's all you get. Coleslaw and bread? Yeah, that's all you get. Sorry. And I, right. I mean, just I'll keep going. But and there's also one more that's a little odd was it's banana and mayo sandwich. Uh, we did a flavor pairings video um, a while back where we asked all about community, what are the weirdest flavor combinations you think we should try? And so many people said banana and mayonnaise. The one we actually, or one of the ones we did, we did five, but one of the ones we actually did was banana and pesto. How was that? Bizarre, but in a way that it actually worked. It messes with your head because it shouldn't work. But I don't know whether it's something about the fragrance of the banana and the basil and the palm. It worked. Yeah. It shouldn't have worked, but it did. So the name of this podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. So that's two Portuguese quotes. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that succeeds expectations in life, in the career. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Oh, I think, I think across the last 10 years of doing sorted, probably turning more chickens, but we haven't occasionally broken the old dish or two. And they're the ones that we cling to and pushes on to break another dish. So, you know, to wrap up everything where, I mean, a lot of people know you basically, but where people can find you, you know, what's reserved for the future for you, for sorted foods. Can you just tell a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, you can pretty much find us on any social platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and it's always the same, sorted food, S-O-R-T-E-D food. 
And if you want to get a bit more involved in what we do, uh, we have a sorted club, which is a membership um, proposition that gives you the tools to not only be your best friend in food, but also just simplify and take the stress out of every decision in your food life. Um, and that's all nicely explained at sorted.club. I hope you can come back to the podcast. Your achievement is incredible. It only shows that how food does not have to be just in a restaurant. And it's, it, the videos are extremely funny. So I encourage everybody to check it out on YouTube. Ben, thank you very much for coming. Uh, this was a pleasure. Go try a coleslaw sandwich, you know, perhaps. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that. Yeah. No, thank you, David. It's been great chatting. It's nice to chat chef to chef. Thank you very much, Ben. And have a great day. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you very much for listening to the episode. Please don't forget to subscribe, leave a review. I only accept five stars, by the way. Tell all your friends about the chickens we are turning and the dishes we are breaking. Follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes, on the Facebook page, Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you have any questions, you can send an email to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. See you next time. Adios.